This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. So what do I mean by systems biology? I'm not going to have time to go into that in gory detail, but I'm talking about a more integrated, multi-level understanding of autism. In other words, how do we take genes and many genes and try to extract a systems-level understanding, a neural systems-level understanding? And of course, in 18 minutes, I have limits in how much I can go into, so I'll do my best. The first thing I wanted to do is to uh, acknowledge people in my laboratory. I work in a genetics network with a number of folks John Constantino, Diane Arking, Aravinda Chakravarti, Jonathan Mill, and we collaborate quite closely with Matt State, whose work you've heard about already, and Bernie Devlin in some of the sequencing work, and long-term collaborators, Rita Cantor and Stan Nelson at UCLA. So the model that we have as we're trying to take genes and understand how they affect neural development to lead to autism is that genes interact with the environment during human brain development, leading to cerebral structure. When I talk about cerebral structure, it's not a static structure. It's a dynamic structure at many levels, from gross anatomical all the way down to molecules and chemicals. So, and this cerebral structure is what underlies cognitive function. And of course, I have a two-way arrow here because cognitive function and experience modifies cerebral structure at all of these levels. So our model is that genes in development, something happens leading to autism spectrum conditions. And by identifying genes, we can get a mechanistic handle on what that something is that happens. And we put that in the context of cerebral structure. Again, I mean a dynamic, functioning brain. So one of the things we know is that autism spectrum disorders represent dysfunction in language and social interactions. And therefore, because brain regions underlie cognitive function, it must involve disruption of the functioning of the brain circuits involved in these functions. And so what are they? This is Broca's original patient, Tan. It was called Tan because he could only say Tan was his uh, output. He had aphasia due to a stroke that affected what was, uh, has been now affectionately called Broca's region, the, um, this part of the inferior frontal gyrus, pars triangularis. Of course, it's much larger than that in this And then over several decades, it became clear that language wasn't just in the left frontal lobe. It was in a distributed perisylvian system. And, you know, some of that is cartooned here where you have Broca's region, you have the angular gyrus more and supermarginal gyrus, Wernicke's area and primary auditory cortex. But there's a distributed system that's involved in language output, language comprehension, uh, reading, etc. Now, so at some level... I could show a similar diagram for what we know about social cognition. It might even be a little bit more complicated. But, you know, the point is that fundamentally when we think about autism, and this is kind of, you know, at some level, you know, still fairly theoretical, but I'm I'm presenting it as, as something that's true. But please realize that it's 
it's kind of a model that, so, you know, the one thing that's going to bring autism spectrum disorders together is disconnection of this dysfunction in frontal lobe, but it's not just a one region, it's the connectivity of the frontal lobe, which is involved in language and social cognition with other regions like anterior temporal lobe and, um, you know, parietal lobe um, and mirror neuron systems, etc. And so the, the notion is that many different kinds of defects, you could have defects at the synaptic level here, or defects actually in the connectivity of the neurons, in the number of neurons, in their functioning, etc. Now the notion here is that diverse molecular mechanisms can cause this disconnection. So we use genes, which is kind of our toolbox, and the reason why this toolbox is so powerful is because the brain and brain structures, and as well as brain function, is highly heritable, and this is just some heritability estimates for certain brain regions. And, you know, temporal lobe, frontal lobe, very, very high heritability of the structure of these brains based on twin studies. Just estimates. So if we're talking about a disruption of circuits, brain regions connected together, at some level, it, it fits that we're going to have a, um, that there's going to be a large genetic basis to that. And indeed, as you've seen and heard already from Jonathan Sabat, uh, there is significant evidence for genetic lesions. In fact, there are many um, genetic contributors to, um, to autism that have been identified. One of, the, one of the questions is, to what extent do these rec- represent aspects of normal variation, normal variation in language, normal variation in social cognition in humans and not? Um, but one of the conundrums that we're left with is, as we identify more and more genes, and this, I put up here, because it's from 2008, this already at 2008, we had loci all over the genome. This so heterogeneous, every chromosome had multiple autism loci. Now, you know, we're, the current studies posit 500 to 1,000 genes, again, all over the genome. Maybe increased in some of uh, Jonathan's newly identified hotspots, but still every chromosome we're talking about. So how do we take this incredible heterogeneity and complexity and kind of boil it down to some functional notion of how genes may predispose to circuit dysfunction? One of the notions is that because autism represents dysfunction in language, social behavior, restrictive repetitive behavior if we kind of consider you know, normal distributions, the green being what we call neurotypical and the red some level of dysfunction is measured on a standard test, then the autisms would be over here. And the question is, do the environmental factors and various genes that are the tipping force that might move somebody over here, are they specific for language and social behavior in the general population or not? And, and so... And this has you know, evolution, obvious evolutionary implications. In other words, will we understand language by understanding autism? Genes. And this is just one paper out of many where we collaborated with Simon Fisher and Tony Monaco. We had identified a gene called CNTNAP2 that was in autism families related to language delay. This study was in families with specific language impairment showing the same region of the gene related to language disorder, and Simon's lab has gone on to show that more and more. So potentially this gene, which is an interesting, you know, large gene in the human genome, is related to not only language dysfunction and autism, but in non-autistic in the general population. And so this really f- begins to fit with this model. Does that mean that it's a language gene or under positive selection? No, it, it necessarily doesn't, and we can discuss that in more detail in the discussion. But what it means is that part of the risk for autism, at least, is likely to be um, contributed by, by normal variation. And again, one of the models here, the working model, is it turns out that this gene is highly enriched in frontal 
cortex during development and actually the striatum, these areas that are involved in implicit learning, critical for social and language learning, as are a number of autism genes, but not all of them, to some degree kind of supports a model of circuit dysfunction. But if we go back to 30,000 feet and ask, you know, and look at all the genes that are being identified, and this is just a small subset of, of various genes, they fall into a number of very distinct biological functions from general metabolism to hormonal control of behavior, how brain cells communicate, etc. So how do we ask about common pathways and how do we begin to pull this together kind of going back, not just working on an individual gene level, kind of systematically. And so the question is, despite all the different kinds, each circle might represent a different individual, different kinds of genetics leading to autism and the different genes in each of these, is there some kind of pathway, systematic molecular convergence in autism? And again, explaining that in a little bit more detail, if you have these, these are rare mutations, they're like fragile X that cause fragile X, but 20% of the patients with fragile X at least have an autism spectrum disorder, and the same with most of these uh, mutations, many even more, 70% with the mutation here, Timothy syndrome. So all of these things lead to an, a number of neuronal abnormalities at a pathway level, dysfunctional neurotransmission, dendritic abnormalities, abnormalities in patterning, but the, the notion is this developmental disconnection. Is there actually some convergence at the molecular level, not just at the brain circuit level? And so we get back to evolution now. I'm, I'm, I'm showing here a classic, a now classic paper by Mary Claire King and Wilson um, where they showed evolution at two levels in humans and chimpanzees. And I'm just putting the punchline here. By looking at protein sequences, they saw that protein sequences between chimps and humans are so similar that it has to be gene regulation where and when the, the proteins are actually turned on and off that actually result in the differences between human and chimp. So how do we begin to look at these things? If we're interested in how the brain is patterned, we're interested in this issue, how do we look at this? Well, DNA goes to RNA, goes to protein. That's the central dogma uh, um, it, you know, in biology called a dogma, and it is a dogma, and it's been partially overturned, but let's, let's stick with that for the moment. You know, every cell has essentially the same DNA sequence, essentially, but what differs first is, is the transcriptome, the RNA that's expressed in a cell. That's what makes a neuron different from a liver cell, et cetera, and then they make different proteins, et cetera. We can measure the transcriptome using technologies now that are incredibly inexpensive. I can measure every gene expressed in multiple cells in your body for, for, you know, for dollars. It's, it's really remarkable. So we can do that now using... Um, um, a number of different technologies, and so we've done that. One of the issues, though, again, this gets to the importance of systems biology, is that generally people look one gene at a time. Here's an example. This is actually from a study that Mike Oldham did in my lab when he was a graduate student, comparing controls which were humans and experimental which were chimp, actually chimpanzee brain, but this is just a kind of cartoon of that. This is actually real data. Control versus experimental. This is an expression level. And this is showing statistically that there's no difference between this gene one in this control versus experiment nor gene two. No difference. So if we look at whether something is up or down, increased in chimpanzee, increased in human, these are not different. However, if we look at something else, a different relationship, how they co-vary, these are the different brain samples in human, these are in chimps. These two genes, one in red, one in black, are highly correlated here. Very significant relationship that's absent in this sample. 
So if we can capture this kind of relationship, we can begin to maybe understand at a more systematic level how genes and processes are connected to each other. And one of the ways we can do this is using kind of maps and graphs. These are two different maps. This is from Barabasi's website, who's one of the fathers of modern network thinking. He's done some really nice work in this area, and some, and some of the theoretical stuff that I'm talking about is based on his work. We're fortunate that biological systems, proteins, RNA, actually look like this kind of map. They don't look like this. And why is that? This is an airline map, and what's interesting about it is that you have hubs and spokes. And whether something is a hub is critical. If you knock out a hub here, you've affected that network. If I slow down traffic in Detroit at the airport, that can have a nationwide or even global effect on airport. So because we can identify, because genes actually obey this rule, this inverse power law distribution, where there are very few genes or hubs with high connectivity to everything else, the kind of drivers... We can use this kind of math to identify those things. And just to give you more of a sense of how we might do that, let's take a look. This is, again, from Barabasi. It's very funny. He's gotten very much into social networks. The Internet works like this, too. So, you know, the question, you know, you can basically ask, who has worked with who and how many times? So, you know, there's a few good men. And, you know, so there's always this joke about six degrees of Kevin Bacon. So is Kevin Bacon the most central actor in the world, Barabasi Bar asked, using this methodology? As it turns out, no. Rod Steiger is one, Donald Pleasance. Three is Martin Sheen. Poor Kevin Bacon is all the way at 876. <laughs> but the point is genes, genes fit into a network just like that. Guilt by association. We can, we can see how they relate. We can identify the hubs. We can see how they functionally group together. And that's a critical insight. So we actually took human brain to look at the transcriptome using these methods I talked about, taking frontal lobe, temporal lobe, and the cerebellum, all regions that had been identified. This work was done by Irina Vonigo. Now, I told you that there are hundreds of mutations in autism, likely. We've only identified several dozen of them, but the estimates are now there are between 500 and 1,000 genes. No cause of autism accounts for more than 1%. So if I have 100 children, each one has a different mutation, and maybe even more. So what did we find when we compared 20 autistic brains to 20 controls? What we found was remarkable. This is a clustering of gene expression, the transcriptome, showing the differences. Red is autism, black are the controls. You can see the autism, about 75% of them are grouping together. That's remarkable because of those 20 patients, they all have to have different genetic mutations. And so we're finding really a shared common molecular pathology similar to what Eric Corshane was showing earlier. Of its specific relevance to here, when we compare frontal and temporal lobe in control patients, neurotypicals without any disease diagnosis, we find 500 genes different. When we look in autism, we only found eight. This indicates, to us at least, our interpretation is that the normal genes that differentiate frontal and temporal lobe no longer do so in autism. There's a disruption of cerebral cortical patterning, at least. And if we look at these genes to ask well, are they developmental genes? Would this fit with a developmental model where there's a disruption of patterning? The answer is yes, very strongly. We also were able to use the network biology to identify two key modules associated with autism, and this gave key biological insight. A synaptic module involved in neuronal signaling, expression of these genes is decreased in autism. This one is enriched in known autism genes, and the hub is a known autism gene that splices 
other neuronal genes, and a glial immune module that was increased in autism. It was not enriched in ASD genes or causal genetic variants, and it's likely, our model, likely reactive or secondary. So using this network biology, we've been able to see a structure that's occurring across autism, at least in about two-thirds to three-quarters of cases. So our model now is there's a genetic predisposition that leads to that altered neuronal gene expression program. This, in turn, leads to immune glial inflammatory response. Now, as it turns out, that inflammatory response is not inflammation like you'd see in the periphery. It's an increase in microglia and astrocytes, activated cells, that we think are involved in synaptic pruning and not necessarily in what we classically see as like a bacterial or invasive immune response. This, in turn, leads to altered brain patterning, synaptic dysfunction, and impaired connectivity, which we and other people, including our work with Morella DiPreto, um, has showed impaired connectivity of these frontal and posterior brain regions in autism. So in summary, autism is a complex disease involving many genes. Our investigation of what I'm calling its molecular neuropathology, this transcriptome, indicates so far that it's fundamentally a disorder of disrupted circuit function due to defects in brain patterning and connectivity involving circuits that have been critical for human evolution. It is not necessary that these circuits be disrupted by genes that are fundamental to human brain evolution. In many cases, the genes and processes are highly conserved across mammals. So I think it gives us an opportunity. Understanding these detailed relationships between genes and circuitry will shed light on the evolution of higher cognition, as well as giving us mechanistic insight on how to develop better treatments for these patients, pharmacotherapies, etc. Thanks for your attention. wanted to thank John and uh, Dan for inviting me here today. It's, it's been a tremendous collection of talks. Today I'm going to talk first about the genetic and evolutionary genetic bases of autism. Specifically, I'll address the question of how alleles mediate autism risk in ASD-related phenotypes. And next I'll discuss phenotypes associated with autism in relation, in relation to the evolution of phenotypes along the human lineage to address the question of how and why risk of autism has actually evolved in our lineage. So a basic genetic model for a continuously distributed trait, such as score on an, a scale of autism, is shown here. We have hundreds or thousands of common small effect alleles influencing one's score on this trait, and the effects of those alleles are shown here. We now know that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of alleles like this having small effects on risk of autism, either increasing autism risk or decreasing autism risk. And we can add up all of the alleles that we get from our mother and our father to come up with a, a summed total inherited polygenic liability. We also have variation which is due to rare and de novo mutations. These alterations have relatively large effects. They are relatively few in number, and they add to the inherited polygenic liability to give us the total 
overall liability in this case above the threshold. Now, the critically important question is what do these alleles actually do? At the most general level, our basic evolutionary genetic prediction is that, first of all, these rare alleles are bad. They're expected to be deleterious because they're having relatively large effects on, uh, on a system that is fundamentally well adapted. Those large effects are more likely to be deleterious. And these variants are rare because they are selected against. Natural selection keeps their frequencies very low because of their bad effects on neurodevelopment. Now, these alleles are a different story. These alleles are common. These autism risk alleles, if they only had bad effects, should not be common. They should have been removed from our gene pool by natural selection. So a basic evolutionary genetic model says there must also be something good about these autism risk alleles. These alleles must mediate some sort of trade-off between deleterious effects associated with autism risk and some sort of positive effects that maintains these alleles in human populations. So we have to ask the question, are common autism risk alleles or single nucleotide polymorphisms associated with positive phenotypic traits and with trade-offs between different traits. And we've uh, conducted some tests of this idea with a cohort of about 500 Caucasians. We've genotyped them for 24 of the relatively well-supported, well-established autism risk SNPs. And today I'll just be talking about the results from one of the tests that we gave these individuals, the mental rotation test of visual spatial skill. One of the points of, of this this sort of test is that to determine the usual, the evolved functions of autism risk alleles, we do need to study neurotypical populations. So we can learn about autism by studying people without the condition as well as by studying people with it. Mental rotation test, visual spatial abilities dependent on working memories. Number of studies show that autism spectrum people score higher than neurotypicals. Functional connectivity is lower in autism when they engage in this test, and males tend to score considerably higher than females. Two of the 24 SNPs that we analyzed showed statistical association in analysis of variance with performance on the mental rotation test. These are SNPs in the gene PITX1 and APC. And in both of these cases, the individuals who had more autism risk alleles performed better on the mental rotation test. So this is, I think, some of the first evidence for what we can, can consider to be cognitive advantages or cog cognitive benefits of, of alleles that have been associated with autism. Now, this is an initial proof of concept, I think, for what I like to call uh, an autism phenome project because of the work by uh, Dan Geshwind and, and others. We now have uh, 
well-established lists of at least good candidate autism risk genes, we can find out what those genes do in addition to contributing to autism risk. We can apply these sorts of tests to hundreds of autism risk alleles, testing different social and non-social phenotypes to systematically uncover the single and combined cognitive effects of these alleles. These are not autism risk alleles. These are alleles that are having varying effects on social cognition and other forms of cognition. This provides a framework for subsetting of ASDs, personalized therapies down the road, allows for integration of allelic variation with the variation in phenotypes at different levels, and it provides for robust tests of evolutionary and neurological models of autism that involve trade-offs, connectivity, and other factors. The next part of my talk, I want to discuss the phenotypes associated with autism in relation to the evolution of phenotypes along the human lineage. So I've made a little list of three key adaptations that make us human, with apologies to Carta and Leonardo da Vinci. Humans have big brains, and that makes us smart. We are smart in particular ways. We are socially smart. We have the elaboration of the human social brain, the distributed yet integrated set of neural systems that has evolved specifically in the context of social interactions between people. But we're not just socially smart. We're also technically smart, as shown by the tremendous elaboration of human material culture. If anything has changed the human world, it is advances in technology. Now, we can expand on this very simple list to come up with a longer set of what I would call the core elements of evolved human brain and behavior. This includes language, sense of self, mentalistic skills, social emotionality, pride, guilt, embarrassment, shame, contempt, all have explicitly social contexts, anger and fear, basic emotions do not. We have complex long-term regulated goal pursuit, empathic drive, as we've seen in our discussions of mirror neuron systems, and we have uh, greatly elaborated visual, spatial, and technical skills and high levels of what we can call abstract intelligence, sometimes also called fluid intelligence, and, and intelligence which is not based on learning and enculturation. Now, how did these core elements of human brain and behavior evolve? Well, they must have evolved like everything else evolved. Over the past six million years, there have been a series of mutations, some of which the good ones were selected for and increased to fixation. Many of them are currently segregating, and this is the sort of common alleles that we, that we, we analyze in uh, GWAS studies. So these, this allelic variation relevant to these traits, is, is that variation is still present in extant populations. And each of these human-evolved traits can, like any other traits, vary in two opposite directions, towards either being less developed or being more developed. How have these human-evolved traits been altered, or how do they differ in 
autism. I've summarized a very large body of work, some of which is discussed in these citations. Severe canter autism, a a lack of speech, reduced sense of self demonstrated in some studies, lower mentalistic skill, reduced theory of mind. Basic emotions present, complex social emotions tend to be reduced or absent. Less in the way of long-term goals, insistence on sameness, reduced social motivation. So all of this set of social and verbal and language-related traits show forms of reduction. But these traits down here at the bottom, visual, spatial, technical skills, and abstract fluid intelligence, show considerable, in a considerable body of literature, some of which has been summarized by Motron and his group, most recently in this paper in PLOS One, we have relative and absolute enhancements in visual, spatial, technical skills, and abstract uh, uh, fluid intelligence. So what we're seeing here is something similar to what, we, what I showed you before in our SNP data. We have essentially the, a trade-off between this sort of human-evolved skill and this sort of human-evolved skill. And we can think of autism, at least, in, at least in part, at least in some forms, as being at one extreme of that trade-off. Now, what happens if one goes in the other direction from autism? What does the perturbation look like if we take each of these traits and go the other way? We start out with language appearing out of nowhere, auditory hallucination, overdeveloped sense of self, delusion of grandeur, megalomania, theory of mind hyperdeveloped in paranoia and delusion. These, these top three define psychosis, a set of traits that humans fall into uh, remarkably easily. Extreme social emotionality, highly developed in depression with high levels of, of guilt and shame, complex regulated goal pursuit pushed to a dysregulated extreme is represented by mania in bipolar disorder. Hyperdeveloped empathic drive has been demonstrated in borderline personality disorder where a large series of studies has shown enhancements in empathic skills over normal individuals. So this set of traits defined, defines what can be called the psychotic affective spectrum, including schizophrenia, bipolar depression, and borderline personality, and, and some others. These overlap in phenotypes. Some of them uh, overlap in genetic risk factors, and they all tend to grade into one another. And if you look in these conditions, what you also find is that there are selective reductions, specifically in visual, spatial, technical skills, and the basis of abstract fluid intelligence, which, uh, which is working memory. So what we've got here is a trade-off, but the trade-off is working in the opposite direction. We have hyperdevelopment, hyperdevelopment to the point of maladaptation and pathology of the same set of traits that are reduced in autism. So what this represents is a, is a very simple, probably overly, highly overly simple model of how autism is associated with human evolution and with psychotic affective conditions. The model is based on trade-offs 
between social and non-social skills. Trade-offs are absolutely fundamental to evolutionary biology, all the way from genes up to any sort of higher-level system. You don't get anything for free. If one looks in the literature, there is extensive evidence for trade-off between verbal social skills and non-social skills, from, mainly from studies of autism. Here in red, we have various verbal social skills, empathizing, false belief, theory of mind, abilities, ADOS score, reading mind in the eyes, all of these showing negative correlations with non-social skills commonly involving uh, visual, spatial abilities. So how is this evolutionary model useful? It provides an evolutionary perspective on autism and points to the fundamental importance of trade-offs. The mirroring of autism spectrum and psychotic affective spectrum traits provides for reciprocal illumination of the causes and study and treatments of ASDs in relation to psychotic affective conditions. This means that all of the knowledge that we have gained about schizophrenia, bipolar, depression, borderline, all of that knowledge can, in principle, be directly useful for helping us to understand autism. And just to give you some examples of this sort of reciprocal illumination, there are various pharmaceutical treatments under development or test for ASD, and some of these are the, involve the opposite modifications to the same ligand receptor system. And these lines of development have occurred essentially uh, in isolation from one another. The best case here is the Mgler 5 system, which is hyperactivated in Fragile X and some other forms of autism. So antagonists for this receptor are, uh, are under development and have been tested in Fragile X. The same receptor for the same receptor agonists are being developed and have been tested for schizophrenia. Prenatal exposure to some mood stabilizers, SSRIs, and antipsychotics are associated with ASD and ASD-related traits in offspring. These therapeutics are expected, according to this model, to make people relatively more autistic. This is their effect under the model. But prenatal exposure here is associated with, AS, with ASD. And there's considerable evidence from functional imaging studies for alterations, opposite alterations in various social brain regions. Probably the most interesting recent uh, example is hyperactivation of the mirror neuron system in schizophrenia patients who are actively psychotic. So I've talked today about how Alleles mediate autism risk and ASD-related phenotypes. They do so via the sum to negative and positive effects of cognitive traits with trade-offs playing an important goal. How many cases of autism are a result of having essentially too much of a good thing, too many genes for good visual-spatial skill being at one end of this trade-off? How and why has risk of autism evolved by this model? in the context of social and non-social trait evolution via changes in development and expression of these evolved traits 
with psychotic affective conditions as opposites of ASDs. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I've really enjoyed the day so far, and I'm hoping that my talk will connect with many of the presentations uh, that we've already heard. So um, before I start, I want to acknowledge um, the work of collaborators. Uh, in black, we have a group of uh, collaborators in Cambridge in England, uh, and in blue are some collaborators in Denmark, and I'll be telling you a little bit about Aarhus University and the State Serum Institute in Copenhagen, who are making a large study possible later on in the talk. But the starting point for my talk is uh, the question of why autism is more common in males. Various studies uh, estimate the ratio, the sex ratio of autism to be about four males to every one female in classic autism. And in Asperger's syndrome, which still exists until next year, um, <laughs> it's estimated to be about nine males for every one female. Now, these kinds of sex ratios could reflect all sorts of different factors. A possible factor would be social, uh, that it may be that in certain cultures it's e easier to recognize autism. Uh, clinical factors, that our training as clinicians may make it easier to detect autism in males than in females, or the tools that we use may also uh, do that. Uh, genetic factors could also be playing a part, and we've heard a lot about genetics today, and some of those genes that have been implicated in autism may be sex-linked. Hormones, which is the focus of my talk, are also an interesting biological mechanism, and I'll be particularly focusing on sex steroid hormones, uh, like testosterone, also called androgens, but particularly what they're doing at the fetal stage of development, hopefully connecting with Eric Corchen's uh, earlier talk in trying to pinpoint the origins of conditions like autism to the prenatal stage of brain development. Uh, and uh, in red there is a psychological approach, which is to ask whether autism may be an extreme of specific male-typical traits. So this gets us into the uh, dangerous territory of what in England we call sex differences, in uh, the US we call gender differences. We tend to use the word sex to describe uh, differences at the chromosomal level. Uh, but are there sex differences in the brain and behavior? Well, I thought I'd start with the neuroanatomy because we're on slightly firmer ground because this is just simply showing uh, total brain volume. Uh, and what you see is that uh, males in blue have greater brain volume than females in red. Uh, but size may not be important because what we also see is that females reach their peak in development uh, earlier than males. So rate of development, uh, again, particularly connecting with Eric Corchen's presentation about early brain overgrowth in autism, may be sex-linked. You can also find sex differences in uh, brain regions, not just looking at total brain volume. So here I'm just showing you two regions that are sexually dimorphic. 
One is the amygdala, which is larger in males than females in childhood. Um, uh, we're just talking about typical individual differences and how it uh, changes with sex. And here's another brain region, the planum temporale, which is a language area larger in females than males. So uh, it depends on when in development you look at the size of different regions, but at specific regions that are known to have specific functions, the amygdala involved in social processing very strongly, planum temporale in language function, you see sex differences. Now we're getting into the more uh, dangerous areas in one sense because sex differences in behaviour have been a um, very contested uh, area of research. Uh, but if we just look at child play, what do boys and girls choose to play with in the first five years of life? Hundreds of studies show that if you put toys out on the carpet and you film the children, more boys than girls will choose to play with constructional toys uh, like Lego and toy vehicles, and more girls than boys will choose to play with dolls, but not just um, uh, touching them, they're actually creating social stories with them, so imagining the mental states, the emotions, the thoughts, the feelings of these little figures in plastic. At risk of stating the obvious, it's not that all boys do one thing and all girls do another, uh, this is some data from Melissa Hines' work showing that all we're seeing is differences in terms of how much time uh, boys and girls tend to spend playing with the male-typical toys like the car or the female-typical toys like the doll. And picking up on Karen Pierce's talk earlier today, uh, showing that children at the earliest point uh, in the diagnosis of autism seem to show more of an interest in patterns than in faces, we might be seeing something which uh, looks like an extreme of a male-typical profile in autism. Now we're jumping into even more dangerous territory to look at sex differences in the adult population. So we looked at child play. What about the things that adults play with? Well, we can look at occupational choice, and what we find is that there are a whole cluster of occupations which are more likely to be filled by males than females. Um, these include mathematics, computer science, physics, engineering, and tool making. And here I want to connect with Bernard's talk, the last presentation, in trying to consider the question about whether autism and sex-linked differences may have uh, both positive and negative uh, selection pre pressures. Uh, there's a second set of um, of occupations that we see in the adult world which show the opposite profile. More women than men tend to fill these jobs. Primary school teaching, counselling being two good examples. If we look at the child data side by side with the adult data, it's tempting to, to say that what we're seeing is that males on average are showing more of an interest uh, in systems uh, what, uh, what Bernard was, was calling technical interests, uh, and females are showing more interest in people, in faces, and in the emotional lives of others. The bottom of this slide shows you some data from the SAT math test 
Uh, and this paper was published just this year in PLOS One. It's showing variation across the years on the math uh, subtest of the SAT. And what you see in, is males um, outperforming females on this test despite presumably changes in education and in other factors. So interests may also have a knock-on effect uh, for performance. Now let's look at uh, this idea that maybe autism is an extreme of the male typical profile. Well, here we've got an, an empathy test where you, where you have to read someone else's mind from fragments of photographs of the face, particularly the eye region of the face. Women tend to score better than men on this test where you have to uh, pick which word best describes what the woman in the photo is thinking or feeling. Here she's meant to be concerned. But when you run that test in fMRI, uh, you find this pattern of results, so not just behaviorally, but also in terms of neuronal activity, uh, that, that women show more activity than men, on average, in the left inferior frontal gyrus, and people with autism show even less activity in that same region uh, when looking at people's faces to decode someone else's state of mind. You can also see that same pattern, and it's one I want to draw your attention to, uh, when you take a non-social task. So here we've got a test of finding the target shape as quickly as you can in the overall design. It's called the embedded figures test. Uh, males tend to be faster than females in the general population. So picking up on Dan's point that maybe we should be trying to understand autism in terms of variation in the typical population, people with autism tend to be super quick at finding the target shape hidden in the overall design. So Bernard's point about the genes for autism may predispose to assets or talents, not just to deficits and disability. Uh, but when you run that same test in fMRI, you see that same pattern of results in the posterior parietal cortex, namely that females in the general population show more activity than males in this part of the visual cortex. And people with autism who coincidentally are doing the task better, um, are showing even less activity in that same brain region. So that pattern is one that uh, we've been interested to explore, uh, whether autism might be an extreme of typical sex differences. But so far, everything that I've shown you could just be the result of postnatal experience and culture. So how do you test whether this might have anything to do with biology well, one way is to look at newborn babies who haven't yet been exposed to human culture. These are babies who were 24 hours old, uh, and they were presented with a human face or a mechanical mobile and simply filmed to see how long they looked at each kind of object. Do they show a preference for a social stimulus or a mechanical stimulus? And cutting to the results, you can see that more boys than girls, 43% versus 17%, showed a preference for looking at the mobile, just like Karen's findings that kids with autism um, might even be detected for early diagnosis by their preference for looking at patterns rather than faces. More girls than boys were showing a preference for looking at a human face over a mechanical mobile. Given that these findings are present on day one of life, it means that whatever the role of postnatal experience, we do need to look at prenatal biology. The other way to uh, remove the role of human culture is to look at another species. So this is a study by Melissa Hines, 
where she gave those same toys, like toy cars and toy dolls, this, in this case to vervet monkeys, to see if males and females of that species show a preference, finding, just as we saw in the human child studies, that more males show a preference to play with the toy cars <laughs> and more females to sh- show a preference to explore and interact with the doll-like figure. So let me jump now to a possible biological mechanism. We've been interested to study fetal sex steroid hormones like testosterone. Uh, They're also called androgens. Uh, We're interested in them because, first of all, males in the general population produce much more of these hormones than females, at least twice as much. Uh, And secondly, we know from animal research that these hormones have organisational effects on brain development. Organisational is another word for permanent, in the sense that if you deprive a rat uh, of testosterone, it changes its brain development and brain structure and function. If you uh, increase testosterone in utero uh, in a rat, you again see changes in brain uh, uh, structure, function and behaviour. So these are permanent or long-lasting effects of testosterone that you can measure in the amniotic fluid that surrounds the baby. How to test this in humans in an ethical way? Well, the only way to do this safely is to ask women during pregnancy who are having amniocentesis for their consent when the needle goes into that fluid for clinical reasons to also analyse it for hormones, for testosterone produced by the baby. That's the time in development when uh, we're most interested because postnatally hormones may be doing something completely different. But prenatally, we know the hormones from animal work are changing brain development. So that's what we do. We measure the hormones in the amniotic fluid that surrounds the baby uh, at the end of the first trimester and going into the second trimester of pregnancy, which coincides with a surge of production in testosterone in the fetus. The fetus is producing a lot of testosterone, at least in males, at that time, and it coincides with when women, some women in pregnancy choose to have this procedure. So it gives us an opportunity as scientists to wait till the baby's born and look to see if testosterone levels in the womb have any relationship with child development uh, postnatally. What we find is that fetal testosterone levels that you measure in that fluid are related to individual differences in typical development. So here we're now not looking at autism, we're looking at variation in any group of children, that some children make more eye contact, some children start to talk earlier, some children are more sociable, and some are less. And what we find is that testosterone, fetal testosterone, is inversely correlated with these behaviours in early childhood. The amount of eye contact they make, their social skills, how rapidly they're developing language, and their empathy. Inversely correlated means the higher the the level of fetal testosterone, the slower they are to develop these behaviours. But fetal testosterone turns out to be positively correlated in childhood with this cluster of behaviours. Autistic traits, so how many autistic traits you have as measured on different scales, how narrow your interests are, your attention to detail on that embedded figures test and how interested you are in systems or your technical interests. 
positive correlation, of course, means that the higher your testosterone levels prenatally, the stronger you, the, the, the more you show these patterns. So if I just show you some of that data, this is um, data where we, we're measuring the children's ability to read emotional expressions uh, in a forced choice. So picking one of these four words to best describe what the child is thinking or feeling. Uh, sorry, the person in the photo is thinking or feeling. Here he's meant to be interested in something. And what we see is that as your testosterone level in the womb is higher, you have more difficulty on this test of empathy at age eight. So hormones prenatally are predicting performance in empathy eight years later. Bear in mind that all of these dots in the graph are typically developing children. So this is helping us to understand or get a handle on variation in any population. Here's a second example from that same study. Um, This time we're looking at autistic traits. And whereas previously the line went down, showing a negative or an inverse correlation, now we're seeing the line go up, that when a, a, a parent, the mother, is asked, how many of these autistic traits does your child have, either measured on the autism spectrum quotient, a questionnaire, or even in toddlerhood, on the checklist for autism in toddlers, a quantitative version, we see that the higher the testosterone level, the more autistic traits a child is showing. Once again, to underline the point that all of these dots in the graph represent one child who is typically developing. So autistic traits in the population is a dimension. Uh, Just as we talk about the autism spectrum, we can also think of autistic traits blending right through the population. And we're beginning to see how the number of autistic traits correlates with this sex steroid or androgen uh, hormone, testosterone. Now, the problem with our work so far, just to wrap up in the last two slides, is that um, we've been uh, measuring testosterone in typically developing children. Here there were about 235 kids. That's way too small a sample to be able to say whether elevated levels of fetal testosterone are associated with having a diagnosis of autism. As we've heard, autism is about 1% of the population. So there might be one or two kids with autism with a clinical diagnosis in that, uh, that sample. So that's why we're working with our Danish colleagues. Um, in Denmark, they have uh, a collection of amniotic samples from women who've had amniocentesis during pregnancy, going back to the 1980s, stored in their freezers. They have about 100,000 samples, and that gives us plenty of opportunity to see which kids have gone on to develop autism. And of course, we have as many non-autistic or typical kids to choose as controls. On that basis, we've been able to identify 59 kids with autism, and we've uh, selected uh, about four times the number of controls. We're not just looking at testosterone, we're looking at all of the steps in the sex steroid uh, pathway. So testosterone is just one of these androgens, but it's synthesized from a number of precursors, all of which are known to have masculinizing effects on brain development. They're called the delta-4 sex steroid pathway, and they're mediated by a specific gene. So when we're looking at hormones, we should always remember that the amount of hormone we produce and uh, how, it, how it functions in terms of the receptors for that hormone 
uh, themselves are influenced by genes. But hormones are also interesting because they are epigenetic. That's to say, these particular hormones can turn genes on and off. So when we are thinking about genes that may be very common, we should also be thinking about genes that uh, might be regulating other genes. And I saw that one of the genes that Dan showed was the uh, GABA B3 gene, uh, which seems to be unrelated to hormones. It's a receptor for a neurotransmitter, but it's modulated by this uh, sex steroid hormone, testosterone. Here are my conclusions that fetal androgens, so the sex steroid hormones produced by the fetus, play a role in sexual dimorphism of behavior and in brain development, uh, and that these hormones are interesting not just because they shape brain development, but because they interact with genetic factors. So rather than thinking of autism as purely genetic, or rather than thinking of sex differences as purely genetic, we can be thinking of them as a, the outcome of many factors inter interacting, but including hormonal factors. And the Denmark study that I described uh, is close to the end of, um, of being completed, uh, and I think will be the strong test of the fetal androgen theory of autism. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.